Good morning, America. I'm Charles Gibson. I'm Diane Sawyer, and it's Tuesday, September 11th, 2001. It is beautiful outside, perfect September day with lots of sunshine. Oh, would you look at Washington, huh? I'm going outside today. Other than that, it's kind of quiet around the country. We like quiet. It's quiet. It's too quiet. Is that American 11 trying to call? We have some claims. Just stay quiet and you'll be okay. We're returning to the airport. The pilot, everyone's been stabbed. They're in the back of the airplane. They're not. Oh, the hijackers are in the cockpit. Oh, no. Okay, we just lost connection. This is CNN Breaking News. This just in, you are looking at a, obviously a very disturbing live shot there. That is the World Trade Center, and we have unconfirmed reports this morning that a plane has crashed into one of the towers of the World Trade Center. A gigantic sonic boom. The air is filled with hundreds of thousands of pieces of paper that are just sort of floating like confetti. You say that emergency vehicles are there. Another jet going. So, but of course, the major concern is human oh loss. I mean. <laughs> Oh my God. Oh my God. Why do you say that was definitely on purpose? It's because it literally blew itself into World Trade Center. Early reports are that at least one of those planes was a hijacked American Airlines plane en route from Boston to Los Angeles. Thousands of people that have been running from inside these buildings. We're blanking dying when asked what was happening and hung up. There was screaming and yelling in the background and a follow-up call was not answered. We heard a big bang and then we saw smoke coming out and everybody started running out and we saw the plane on the other side of the building and there was smoke everywhere and people are jumping out the windows. Over there they're jumping out the windows I guess because they're trying to see themselves. I don't know. Bodies started dropping from the top floors of the uh, tower closest to the highway. Obviously they had two choices to be burned into in flames or to uh, leap and end it all. It was quite tragic. And you're listening to the sounds of September 11th, 2001. This is our American Stories. That first plane crash. The first plane crash happened about 10 minutes before newly elected President Bush arrived at Booker Elementary School, the first black school in Sarasota, Florida. At 9.05 a.m., White House Chief of Staff Andy Card whispered into Bush's ear, quote, a second plane has hit the second tower. America is under attack. Let's go to President Bush's first press conference immediately following the second attack. David, we're going to, David, we're going to cut the country off. President Bush is speaking. Ladies and gentlemen, this is a, a difficult moment for America. Uh, today we've had a national tragedy. Uh, two airplanes have crashed into the World Trade Center in an apparent terrorist attack on our country and have ordered that the full resources of the federal government uh, go to help the victims and their families and, the, and to conduct a full-scale investigation to hunt down and to find those folks who committed this act. Terrorism against our nation will not stand. And now if you join me in a moment of silence. May God bless the victims, their families, and America. Thank you very much. And the story just kept getting worse. Oh, my goodness. 
Oh my goodness, there is smoke pouring out of the Pentagon. Associated Press is reporting that a plane crashed at the Pentagon. The heart of the military uh, command center of the United States of America, John. It can't get much worse than this, let's hope. I'm in front of the Capitol, and a moment ago, police officers ran up to us and told us, and I quote, there is a plane that has been hijacked and is headed this way. It should be noted that there are sharpshooters on the roof of the White House who have anti-aircraft missiles for just this kind of situation. Wow. And some Jamie, people were... Jamie, I need you to stop for a second. There has just been a huge explosion. We can see uh, a billowing smoke rising. Let's go to the Trade Tower again because, John, we now have a... What do we have? We don't... It looks like a, a new plume, a new large plume of smoke. Oh, my God! Oh, my God! Oh, my God! We're not sure exactly what happened, but it was another explosion on the far side of one of the buildings from where we're standing. The, ver the, the reverberation and another explosion on the right-hand side. And I can't, I'll, I'll tell you that I can't see that second tower, but y there was a cascade of sparks and fire, and now this, it looks almost like a mushroom cloud. What is behind it, we're, I, I cannot tell you. But just look at that. That is about as frightening a scene as you will ever see. The whole side has collapsed? The whole building has collapsed. The whole building has collapsed? The building has collapsed. It's folded down on itself. Baby, there's three of us in We're not ready to die, but it's getting bad. There's lots of people up here. Oh, God! Oh, there it goes. 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 And there's, you can see, perhaps the second tower, the front tower, the top portion of which is collapsing. United 93, go ahead. Did you hear uh, some interference on the frequency here uh, a couple of minutes ago, screaming? We have a report that a 747 uh, is down in Pennsylvania. I need to interrupt you. This is a Taliban spokesman uh, talking uh, now in Kabul, I believe. Uh, sources are telling CNN that there are, quote, good indications that people with links to the Osama bin Laden organization are responsible for today's attacks. Dateline, uh, West Bank. Uh, thousands of Palestinians celebrated today's terror attacks in the United States chanting, God is great, and distributing candy to passers-by. And when we come back for the hour, remembering 9-11-2001, this is Our American Stories.
bed and the floor is completely engulfed. We're on the floor and we can't breathe. Okay. And it's very, very, very hot. It's very, is it, are the lights still on? The lights are on, but it's, it's very, very hot. Everybody stay calm. Hold on one second, please. I'm going to die, aren't I? No, 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 no. Say I'm going to die. Ma'am, 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 say your prayers. And we're not going to die. We're going to think positive because you got to help each other get off the floor. I'm now, stay calm, stay calm, stay calm. This is Our American Stories, remembering September 11, 2001. We want to share a few stories in this hour among the many thousands of tragedies. Also, all kinds of heroism on display, but lots of loss, lots of love, lots of anger, too, on that day. And here's Jay Jonas of the Fire Department of the City of New York. On September 11, 2001, I was the captain of Ladder Company 6 in the Chinatown section of Lower Manhattan. It was the change of tours, and uh, all of a sudden we heard a, a loud jet trail go across the sky, and uh, we could hear the plane hit the North Tower. Uh, we responded, and uh, we arrived at the uh, North Tower of the World Trade Center. As we were responding in, we could see uh, large gaping holes and there's two sides of the uh, North Tower with uh, smoke and fire coming out under pressure. And it was an incredible sight, something that, you know, I, was a, I had 22 years on the fire department at the time in some very busy places, and uh, nothing prepared me for what I was seeing. And um, we got there, we um, went to receive our orders uh, from uh, the incident commander, which was Deputy Chief Pete Hayden, and as, as we were waiting to get our orders, uh, we saw a large black shadow on the ground, and we heard a loud explosion, and we didn't know what that was. And a man came running in from the outside and said that a second plane has just hit the second tower. So now we knew we were under attack. Uh, it was not an accident. And uh, one of the most poignant things that was ever said that day was at this point, one of the firemen that I was standing near um, just looked up and he said, he said, gentlemen, we may not live through today. And uh, all the firemen that were standing there, uh, we all agreed and we wished each other good luck and shook each other's hands. And, and uh, out of all the guys I was surrounded by when the, uh, that plane hit the South Tower, I'm the only one that's alive. They all died. The North Tower was exactly where the 1993 attackers detonated their truck bomb in the first terrorist incident and first terrorist attack against the World Trade Center. But in that moment, in that firehouse, there was no time to think back. These firefighters had a job to do. I received our orders from Chief Hayden to go up for search and rescue in the North Tower. So we proceeded to go up by foot. We made it to the 27th floor, and um, we were catching our breath and getting a a quick drink of water when we felt uh, and heard the... uh, collapse of the South Tower. We were in the North Tower. And um, that was an indication to me that it was time, uh, that our mission was no longer workable, that it was time for us to get out of there. And we started heading down the stairs. Uh, as we were going down the stairs, we came upon a woman who was in distress. She couldn't walk. And uh, one of my firemen, Tommy Falco, turned and looked at me and says, hey, Cap, what do you want to do with her? And uh, even knowing that we were in the full retreat mode, 
that we were run, essentially running for our lives, uh, we couldn't pass it. So we, we decided to put ourselves into harm's way to, to save her. And uh, so we did. We started carrying her down the stairs, which created a large jam of people behind us, so we had to step aside a couple times to let them pass. And um, we had made it to the fourth floor, and uh, she... Uh, she fell to the floor and she was yelling at us, telling us to leave her, and we weren't going to leave her. So uh, we broke in, I broke into the fourth floor to look for a sturdy chair that we could put her on and we could pick her up within the with her in the chair and run with her. And I couldn't find one. It wasn't an office floor. I almost made it back to the, to the stairway. That's when the collapse of my building started. At 10.28 a.m. on 9-11, after being on fire for 102 minutes, the North Tower collapsed. It took 13 seconds. At least that's what the clocks say. Back to firefighter Jay Jonas remembering what it was like inside as the North Tower crumbled on top of them. I uh, received our orders from Chief Hayden to go up for search and rescue in the North Tower. So we proceeded to go. I uh, received our orders. We kept waiting for the, the big beam or the big piece of concrete to come and get us. And for us, it didn't come. And uh, you know, once the collapse stopped... We gave out a, a roll call to see who was still alive, and all my men were still alive. The woman we were rescuing was still alive. Uh, there was a total of uh, 13 of us in the stairway. And um, so we, uh, but now we're trapped. You know, so we're going through uh, the ordeal of trying to figure out how to get out. And then once we realized we couldn't help ourselves, we had to mentally come to the um, realization that you know we're we're in need of rescue, that you know we're no longer the rescuers, we're the rescuees, and uh, so we had to uh, talking to several people on the radio. Some of them were some of my closest friends in the fire department, and uh, it was very comforting to talk to them. After about after a very harrowing ordeal of being trapped, it was about um, three and a half to four hours later. It's when um, a ray of sunshine hit the, uh, hit the stairway, and it was coming from the outside. This, the smoke and dust had cleared to the point where um, uh, the sunlight hit the stairway. We realized that we were essentially on top of the World Trade Center. We're on the fourth floor, and we're on top of the World Trade Center. But Jay didn't have time to dwell on this rather amazing and certainly sobering point they were still trapped in the building, with civilians, including a collapsed woman. And so they went back to work. With the added light, we, we, we saw a way that we, we could get out. And uh, uh, one of the people who were trapped wanted to get out right away. So we tied him off on a rope. And uh, we told him to make contact with a fireman that we saw off in the distance. He tied off the rope, and we tied off the rope in the stairway, and we started sending people out on the rope. And uh, by the time the firemen made it to the, uh, to the stairway, we had almost everybody out, but th- th- they had to take out Josephine Harris, the woman. And uh, they needed fresh people and a Stokes basket stretcher to take her out. And then we worked our way across the rubble. And uh, I didn't know it at the time. It was my last run as a captain of Ladder 6 because uh, I'd be promoted five days later. But um, it was... Uh, heartwarming to see one by one my men making it to West Street 
and I felt once I made it to West Street, they would be safe. And uh, one by one, I got to see that happen. From a, uh, a fire officer's perspective, under a day like that, it, uh, my men made it. You know, and, and I sent them home to their families that night, which was certainly not a common thing that happened that day. You know, that uh, uh, we're very fortunate. And you know what? This woman, Josephine Harris, saved these fighters' lives, too. She collapsed on the fourth floor, so that's where Jay and his men slowed down. When the building collapsed, no one survived above the fifth floor or down on the first. For years after, she and the fighter fighters who took turns carrying her downstairs stayed in touch. Whenever Josephine was asked for an interview, she would call the firefighters to make sure they were okay with it. And they would always say yes, and that they'd be there for her. On January 11, 2011, Josephine Harris called 911 from her apartment in Brooklyn. Firefighters and paramedics rushed to the scene, but it was too late. Josephine had died of an apparent heart attack. Jay Jonas later said that it was, quote, like losing a member of your family. And she really was a member of the latter six family. They then learned that Josephine was penniless. It turns out her family couldn't afford to bury her, so her body stayed at the city morgue. Well, Jay and the guys, they called around for help, and the owner of the Greenwich Village Funeral Home remembered the story of the guardian angel of Ladder 6. He took care of all the funeral costs, and Jonas and the firefighters carried her one more time, one last time, as pallbearers of a casket engraved with the words guardian angel this is our american stories jay jonas's story the story of 9-11 remembered more after these messages This is Our American Stories, remembering the anniversary of 9-11. Many companies and families lost loved ones that day. I lost one of my best friends, co-captain of my high school basketball team for two years. There was nothing we didn't do together for so many years. Paul Biatini. There was one investment company that lost 658 of its 960 employees. Before that day, Cantor Fitzgerald hadn't been all that well-known beyond Wall Street. However, after 9-11, it was known as the business to have lost the most employees on 
Quote, we have death fame, CEO Howard Lutnick said. A few days after the horrific event, Lutnick participated in an emotional interview. He didn't just lose all those employees, by the way. One of them was his brother. Here he is explaining why he wasn't there. My little boy, I have a five-year-old, and it was his first day of kindergarten at, uh, at Horace Mann, so I took him for his first day of big boy school. And uh, because of that, I was late getting down to the office, and uh, therefore I, I wasn't in the building. I was on my way. I saw the building on fire, so I, I didn't go in. Um, but I stood, I stood at the door um, off of Church Street. Um, where there were flags there and I stood at that door um, and people were coming out and I was yelling at them, you know, to run and get out and uh, there were police sort of around me um, yelling at people, telling them to get out and, and I would ask them what floor they were coming from, what floor they're coming from. Someone would say 55 and I'd scream, we have 55 and because and, I kept wanting to get up the building and, well, my brother, my brother was on the 103rd floor and he worked, he worked for me and um, he worked at Canner and uh, he, he called my sister. Uh, just after the just after the plane hit, and he told her that um, he said that the smoke was pouring in. He was he was stuck in a corner office. There was no way out, and the smoke was coming in. And he's he's not good, and and things are not good, and he's not going to make it. And he just wanted to say that he loved her, and he wanted to say goodbye, and uh, tell everyone that that he loved them. And then the phone went the phone went dead. The plane crashed into floors 93 through 99. Cantor Fitzgerald was located right above that. 101 to 105, the top floors of, of number one World Trade Center, the, which they call now the North Tower. I got to the 91st floor, and I knew if I got one employee, one, if one person came down from that floor, then I know that there had to be others. There would be others behind them. There would be others going out other doors that, that would be good. But I got up to 91, and then I heard this sound. It sounded like... Another plane was going to hit the building, and was but it didn't sound like it was far away. It sounded like it was, like right where the ceiling is above us. It was so unbelievably loud, and someone screamed out, "Another one's coming!" So I just turned around and ran, and I and I was running. I it was it was number two World Trade Center collapsing. So I'm a, I'm, I'm standing underneath a building like an idiot, um, and I start running, and I'm trying to get ahead of the smoke, and then the smoke comes around the corner on Trinity Church where I ran and knocks me down underneath a truck, and I'm sitting there in this black, the blackest black that can ever be. I reached up, I tried to see if I could see, and I took my hands and I put it up, and I actually touched my eye. I, I couldn't see my hand. I could feel the particles in the air. They were, they were like this big. I could feel them going in, and I, wasn't, I couldn't think to like, pick up my shirt. And put, I, was just, I was just sitting there thinking, I, I can't believe it. I can't believe by standing there I died. So I just started walking. I just started walking straight, and I just walked straight, and I just keep walking straight. And I called my wife four hours later, and she was hysterical crying. And so I understand why it took lots of people a long time. I, I was, I'm a pretty together person, and I, four hours I walked. I just walked north. I just kept walking. And he just kept walking. All the Cantor Fitzgerald companies are connected by speakerphone. So there were voices heard from the tower amidst the chaos. Yeah, we have, you know, a speakerphone because all our offices are connected in our equity business. They're, um, they're all connected to each other because they talk to each other all day. And they heard them saying, you know, we need help, we need help, we need help. Uh, it, wasn't, it, it wasn't screens. It was, there was nowhere to go. You couldn't go down, you couldn't go up. There was nowhere to go. 
but I don't know of a single one of my employees who got down. Zero. Zero, and it's really sad, but I think we're all pulling together with a view that we want to make things happen for them. We, we need to take care of them. We need to figure out how to take care of them, and give them more, take care of them, and I think it's going to be a different kind of drive than I've ever had before. It's not about my, it's not about my family. I get to kiss my kids. I get to kiss my kids tonight. But other people don't get to kiss their kids. And I just have to help them. And I think, I think what's amazing, and I think it's amazing, you have 300 people. They lost all their friends. They lost the person to their left. They lost the person to their right. And they call me up and they say, I want to go to work. I say, why do you want to go to work? Let's just go to funerals. And they go, no, no, I want to go to work. I can't stay home. I can't stay home. I have to make... I have to work, I have to do something. And so they, they actually wanted to try to figure out how to be in business. It's unbelievable, it's crazy. it doesn't make any sense. But the, the, the reason they want to be in business, and there's only one reason to be in business, is because we have to make our company be able to take care of my 700 families. 700 families. How do you have 700 families? Just, I can't say it. I can't say it without crying. Well, a different kind of drive that he'd never known before kicked in to Howard Lutnick and those remaining employees. Howard further explains what Cantor Fitzgerald was doing before and after. Cantor Fitzgerald is the primary, it's like the exchange for the world's bond markets. I mean, it's, it, it is the exchange for the world bond markets. Uh, we last, last year we did $50 trillion in business. Today, the remaining employees of Cantor Fitzgerald and Eastbeat have worked every second since that bomb. And they made the decision. And I told them there's no reason for us to open. I don't care when we open, if we open, it doesn't matter to me. And they collectively, 250 of them, collectively voted that they were going to open the markets. And this morning, 7 a.m., those people opened for business, not to, to make money, not to, but they did it because they thought if the, if the Fed and the Treasury wanted it to be open, it was important enough for them to show strength for America and for these markets, then they were going to do their damnedest to get it open, and they did. And it, I, I voted against it. I said, why? I, I don't want you to work. I want you to go home and kiss your kids and, and hug your families, and, but they, it's them. They wanted... They wanted to do it, maybe for themselves, maybe for the, their friends who they lost. But so right this second, it, our electronic systems are running around the world, and it's, I don't know, maybe it's a miracle, maybe it's because these people are just, they're unbelievable. I think you can only be a good boss if you have the right people. And I'm glad they chose to be with me, but I'm the saddest person in the world that they chose to be with me, because <laughs> they would have chose to be with me. So many people, so many names, so many people I loved. So many people we all loved. Again, that's Howard Lutnick, the CEO of Cantor Fitzgerald. They lost so much, but they did go back to work, and here's why. After 9-11, the Cantor Fitzgerald Relief Fund was established. All those people went back to work for a cause, a big cause. They have distributed more than $180 million to the family of Cantor Fitzgerald. One quarter of the firm's profits 
What a great American story. What a sad American story. Cantor Fitzgerald's story. Howard Lutnick's story here on Our American Stories, 9-11 Remembered. to George Bush. Those words will go down in history. And you're also listening to Tom Petty performing on September 21, 2001 in a very special tribute put on by Fox, ABC, NBC, and CBS, a musical tribute called America, a Tribute to Heroes. And my goodness, what a lineup of stars that night. It was everybody. And music has the ability to just heal and bring people together. And it was Bruce Springsteen and Stevie Wonder and U2 and Faith Hill, Petty as you just heard, Enrique Iglesias, Neil Young, Alicia Keys, Billy Joel, the Dixie Chicks, Mariah Carey, Bon Jovi, Sheryl Crow, Sting, Paul Simon, Celine Dion, Willie Nelson. It was a remarkable, remarkable night of music. And I think the whole country watched it and just shut up and listened. And it was beautiful. And no talking by the musicians, almost none. They just played. So let's go back there, because we love music here on Our American Stories. Let's take a listen to Mr. New Yorker himself, Billy Joel. Some folks like to get away, take a holiday from the neighborhood. Have a flight to Miami Beach or Hollywood. Me, I'm taking a greyhound on the Hudson River line. I'm in a New York state of mind. And just a few minutes later, 
Mr. New Jersey stepped up and performed a song he'd written about his hometown that he tweaked. He'd never played it before nationally. And it was perfect and a perfect song for the occasion. Prayer for our fallen brothers and sisters. There's a blood red circle on the cold dark ground, and the rain is falling down. The church door's thrown open, I can hear the organ song, but the congregation's gone. My city of ruin. My city of ruins Now the sweet bells of mercy Drift through the evening trees Young men on the corner Like scattered leaves The boarded up windows The empty streets And my brother's down on his knees My city of ruins My city of ruins Come on, rise up 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 Come on, rise And perhaps the best song written about 9-11 was by Alan Jackson. He wrote it. He sang it. Where were you when the world stopped turning? And I remember where I was. And I remember Alan talking about that song once in an interview, and he had said, it made everybody reevaluate their lives. Well, I reevaluated mine. I was an inveterate bachelor dating a great girl. And I ended up proposing to that girl and getting married to her. And she was in the same place. She thought she'd never settle down. And the same thing happened to her, to us. And we've got a beautiful daughter. And I think 9-11, well, that was the reason for it. it made a lot of us grow up. And so, closing out this hour, where so many perished, And my goodness, 2,606 were killed at the World Trade Center, 125 at the Pentagon, 265 in all four planes. On Flight 93, 40 civilians were killed. 2,996 Americans altogether perished. Friends, family, lovers, employees, and... Well, here on Our American Stories, we'll always remember this day in history. And so let's close it out with Alan Jackson. And again, no one sang it better. No one wrote it better. Where were you when the world stopped turning? Where were you when the world stopped turning on that September day? 
Were you in the yard with your wife and children or working on some stage in L.A.? Did you stand there in shock at the sight of that black smoke rising against that blue sky? Did you shout out in anger and fear for your neighbor or did you just sit down and cry? Did you weep for the children who lost their dear loved ones Pray for the ones who don't know Did you rejoice for the people who walked from the rubble And sob for the ones left below Did you burst out with pride for the red, white and blue And the heroes who died just doing what they do Did you look up to heaven for some kind of answer and look at yourself and what really matters I'm just a singer of simple songs I'm not a real political man I watch CNN but I'm not sure I can tell you the difference in Iraq and Iran But I know Jesus and I talk to God and I remember this from when I was young Faith, hope, and love are some good things He gave us And the greatest is love And Alan Jackson is still stunned that to this day that song has staying power. Our special 9-11 hour here on Our American Stories, one of the biggest American stories of the century in our history. This is Our American Stories. In a crowded room did you feel alone Did you call up your mother and tell her you loved her Did you dust off that Bible at home Did you open your eyes and hope it never happened Close your eyes and not go to sleep Did you notice the sunset First time in ages to speak to some stranger on the street. Did you lay down at night and think of tomorrow? Go out and buy you a gun. Did you turn off that violent old movie you're watching and turn on I Love Lucy reruns? Did you go to a church and hold hands with some strangers? Stand in line and give your own blood. Did you just stay home and cling tight to your family? Thank God you had somebody to love. I'm just a singer of simple songs. I'm not a real political man. I watch CNN, but I'm not sure I can tell you the difference in Iraq and Iran. I know Jesus and I talked to God And I remember this from when I was young Faith, hope, and love are some good things He gave us And the greatest is love I'm just a singer of simple songs I'm not a real political man I watch CNN But I'm not sure I can tell you difference in our rock and our red. But I know Jesus and I talk to God 
garden I remember this from when I was young Faith, hope and love are some good things He gave us And the greatest is love And the greatest is love And the greatest is love Where were you when the world stopped turning on that September day? And this is Our American Stories, and we're listening to the iconic Southern rock band Leonard Skinner and their classic song, Sweet Home Alabama. And for the hour, we're going to talk about one of Alabama's greats. This day in history, Bear Bryant was born in 1913, and we're going to celebrate his life. We're going to hear from his ex-players, people who've written about him, and we're going to get at the secret to Bear Bryant's success. And that word character will appear again and again. And our This Days in History, as always, are brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College, where you can go to learn all the things that matter in life, all the things that are beautiful in life. And if you can't get to Hillsdale, Hillsdale will come to you with their free and terrific online courses. Go to hillsdale.edu. That's hillsdale.edu. And by the way... They love to teach and talk about character and virtue a lot over there at Hillsdale, which makes them different than all the other colleges in this country. In an episode of Law & Order, the late actor and U.S. Senator Fred Thompson let his fellow New York prosecutors know that if it weren't for Osama bin Laden, September 11th would properly be remembered for being Bear Bryant's birthday. On the day of his funeral, the state of Alabama came to a complete stop. Let's take a listen to a local TV station reporting that day. The motorcades came perhaps one of the most loving tributes to the legendary coach. As the four-mile-long procession made its way along the interstate, large crowds gathered to pay their last respects. Some wore the traditional crimson and white in honor of the man they consider a hero. Many carried signs expressing a heartfelt message. A sad day for uh, all Alabamians uh, because uh, uh, he uh, meant something, you know, to every one of us. Every mile along the motorcade's route, the crowds grew larger. Hundreds of cars lined the interstate as the procession drew nearer to Elmwood Cemetery. Three churches in Tuscaloosa filled to capacity for the services. Thousands of cars and trucks pulled to the side of I-2059 as the funeral procession moved to its final destination, as we just heard in that report, Elmwood Cemetery in Birmingham. By the way, folks still go there to pay tribute to this man. News accounts estimated that nearly 250,000 Alabama residents 
lined roads and overpasses along that 55-mile route. That's approximately 12% of Alabama's total state population to pay their respects. Here's player John Coyle, who was at the funeral service. And by the way, he played on three SEC championship teams for Coach Bryant and won a national championship in 1973. Let's listen to John. What happens is uh, even when at the funeral, uh, all of us that had played, they had a roped-off area, and not one of us cried. That wasn't because of anything other. It's just even in his death, he still influenced us, and it was, you celebrate life. You don't cry that I'm gone. And we were all sad because he had... Uh, there's there's three kinds of people you're going to meet. People that impress you, people that impact you, and people that inspire you. You know, and Coach Bryant obviously was impressive, and he impacted. But greatness, I, I mean, I wasn't any good, but Coach Bryant made me think I was. Boy, he made a lot of players think they were good and led Alabama's Crimson Tide football team to six national championships. And six of his Alabama teams were ranked number one. He wasn't just a coach, former USC coach John McKay said of Bryant. He was the coach. As another college football season begins, by the way, it is worth looking back at the life of this larger-than-life man. His nickname was Bear, said Joe Namath, who played at Alabama for Bryant. Now imagine a guy that can carry that nickname, Bear. By the way, here's what Joe Namath, who played again for the great Bear Bryant from 1962 to 1964, won a national championship in 64. Here's what he had to say generally about Coach Bryant. I would uh, describe him as a friend, as a mentor, as uh, a man uh, that was stronger than me that I wish I could be like him in a lot of ways. Uh, He's a hard worker. And uh, he wasn't always right, but uh, he, he wouldn't mind saying when he was wrong either, you see. The way he worked, the way he demanded things out of his players, uh, it wasn't a democracy, you know. You had to do it his way. His way was the best. I mean, he had proven that prior to coming to Alabama, Texas A&M, Kentucky, you know, Maryland. So uh, we believed in him. And Coach Bryant had a way of getting more out of the gifted guys trying to get more out of the gifted guys and appreciating the guys. When I say gifted, Coach Bryant appreciated effort, boy. He appreciated the guys that uh, weren't as gifted uh, athletically as some of the other guys, but worked hard. Work, hard work. That's going to be a core theme as we continue. And when we come back, we're going to hear more about the roots of this work ethic. Where did it come from? Where did... Paul Bear Bryant come from? Where was he born? What were the circumstances of his life? Because, my goodness, when you hear his story, hear where he came from and and from what he sprang and from where he sprang, by the way, a little patch of earth in Arkansas that almost nobody's ever heard of. Well, so many great men and women in this country come from small, small towns and end up having large, larger-than-life impact. When we come back, more on the life of Bear Bryant. And as always, our This Day in History is brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College. Paul Bear Bryant, born on this day in history in 1913. His story continues here on Our American Stories. 
This is Our American Stories. We continue with a celebration of the life of Bear Bryant. The craggy-faced coach roamed the Alabama sidelines in his houndstooth hat for 25 years. But his legacy wasn't just about wins. It was the impact he had on thousands of athletes he coached. And we're going to hear from a whole bunch of them throughout this hour. And by the way, when you hear from them, it's sometimes 30, 40, uh, 45 years later. And yet these grown men are talking about things as if it had happened yesterday. Bryant was born in Morrow Bottom, Arkansas, a town so small that the town a few miles down the road, Fordyce, was considered a big one with a population of 3,200. He was the 11th of 12 kids, three of whom died as infants. His family was poor. Bryant's father was a farmer, while his mother, Ida May, tended to the family. His dad became ill when Paul was a toddler, forcing his wife to run the farm. Work became a fact of life for the Bryant children. Bear was big, eventually growing to six feet four. He later recalled acquiring his nickname as a teenager in high school when he accepted a dare to wrestle a bear. He also remembered having an inferiority complex when he was a young man, all, of course, from growing up so poor and so isolated. He was heckled. As a tackle at the Fordyce High School football team, Bear walked away with all state honors and a scholarship to play at, of all places, his home state's arch rival, the University of Alabama. It was there that Bryant developed his appetite for winning. His team won 23 games and lost only three when he was a starter. Alabama won a national championship in 1934 and beat Stanford in the 1935 Rose Bowl. Luckily for college football fans everywhere, Bryant didn't have the talent to play in the NFL. He joined the Navy after Pearl Harbor, and after completing his service in 1945, did what God created him to do, lead boys in battle on the gridiron and turn them into men. After bouncing around the South for a dozen years as a coach with three football programs, Maryland, Kentucky, and Texas A&M, Bryant got the call he'd always dreamed of and returned to his alma mater. Quote, it was like when you were out in the field and you heard your mama calling you, calling you to dinner, he explained. At his joy of returning to Alabama, mama called, Bryant told reporters. Alabama won just four games in three years prior to Bear Bryant's arrival, but in his first full season in 1958, Alabama won five and lost four, and by 1961, he received his first number one ranking nationally, going undefeated and beating Arkansas in the Sugar Bowl. What was the key to his success? It was his fierce work habits and the mental toughness he instilled in his players. And now let's hear from Joe Namath, who tells a story about Coach Bryant. We were running an option right, and just uh, before I got hit, I pitched a ball, and it was a bad pitch. The voice that I'm hearing now, Namath, not just your job to run the pitch, you get on the ball, whatever, and he was screaming a little bit at. So I get up off the ground, and I'm walking back, and yep, yep, yep. And about that time, he had that face mask of mine in his hand, and he had me jacked up. He said, boy, when I talk to you, you look me in the eye and say, sir. I said, yes, sir, yes, sir, yes, sir. And I was on my toes, by the way. He's pulling that face mask up. My senior year, I could have been three football fields away if I heard, Joe, 
Yes, sir. <laughs> he had a way of getting players' attention. Indeed. And by the way, Bear was more than a coach. You could hear it there. He was a teacher, and he wasn't afraid to teach his boys hard lessons about life. One of those lessons, winning isn't as important as respecting the team and the rules of the coach. Well, I broke a training rule, and we had an off week. And that weekend of the off week, someone had told him that I was uh, downtown drunk directing traffic, which was wrong. And when Coach Bryant questioned me about this, he said, Joe, now uh, I'm going to take your word on this because I trust you. I believe you. I've got word, though, that you were downtown doing this. And I, no, sir, that's not true. And then he said, uh, you didn't have anything to drink on Saturday? Well, Saturday night I went to a fraternity party and I did have a drink, a seven and seven that I didn't even finish because, you know, I, was, I wasn't a drinker at that time. And I'm not now, but at that time. But I did have a drink. And when I said yes, sir, we were standing in uh, a room in the dormitory and there was a bed there. We were both standing up. And when I said yes, sir, he just said, oh, no, no, no. And he fell back on the bed. Scared me. And I went, coach, coach. And he said, I'm all right, I'm all right. And uh, when he sat back up and stood up, he said, well, I'm going to have to suspend you. He said, but first I'm going to meet with the coaches. We'll talk about this. You come over to the office at 2 o'clock. So I went over there to office and all the coaches were already standing out there in the foyer and when I walked in coach Bryant walked out and he said well we had a meeting some of these coaches think uh, we should uh, discipline you some other way he said that it's all right we can do that he said but if I don't suspend you now I won't be coaching here next year I'll retire and I was scared and embarrassed. And I said, oh, coach, you know, I don't want you to do that. Like, you know, like, no. And I didn't know whether he would or wouldn't, but that's what he said. And I said, oh, no, sir, no, sir. He said, all right, then you, you accept the suspension. I want you moved out of the dorm. You move over to another dorm, and then you behave yourself for the next four months or whatever. You can come out for spring practice. I said, oh, yes, sir, thank you. And it wasn't just stars like Joe Namath that were suspended. Let's hear a story from Bob Baumhauer, a five-time NFL Pro Bowl player who played for Bryant in the mid-'70s. I probably am as, as, as good an example as anybody of somebody that came here as a not just a boy. I wasn't a punk, but I, I, I definitely wasn't a man when I came here. And um, Coach uh, Griska, Coach Griska around Coach Griska and the uh, off, uh, the back then we had freshman teams. I was an offensive lineman as a freshman. I asked them to move me to defense and uh, for the spring, and they moved me to defense. I um, moved my way up and became the number two tackle, which meant I was a starter. Is back then that's the way Coach Bryant uh, rated folks. I think one, two, three, four at each position, and so I thought I had arrived, had a good spring game, and uh, didn't do much between spring and fall. And came back and uh, uh, never forget it. Old Willie, old Willie Meadows gave me my basket, and it wasn't brown back then. It was orange or yellow or whatever the heck it was. But I, I was expecting to be a starter, and I was like number 23 on the list. And uh, what had happened is I had not prepared to come back uh, 
uh, had not prepared properly to come back in great shape, and uh, Coach Bryant knew it. And after the third practice, I said, uh, hey, I don't need this stuff. I was a starter last spring, and uh, I'm going go anywhere and play. And uh, uh, what happened next really changed my life. Uh, I quit through my basket at Willie and, and walked out and got a phone call. That was during two-a-days. Got a phone call that afternoon, and they said Coach Bryant wanted to see me in his office. And like, like you, Barry, with your meeting and, and Kenny, and I don't know how many of y'all had your meetings in Coach Bryant's office, but I, sat, I, I uh, went up there, and he wanted my dad to go with me. So me and my, my father and myself went up there. And um, Long story short, he was very gracious to my dad, welcomed him in, looked at me and said, what the hell are you doing here? And I uh, really didn't know what to, uh, what to say, but he, he basically pretty much put me on my heels. I was all ready for a speech like you were, Barry. And um, I said, well, I heard you want to talk to me. He said, well, I don't like talking to quitters, but since you're here, come on in and sit your butt down. And, um, <laughs> yeah. But, but what happened in that meeting, y'all, uh, he changed my life. Because before I came to the University of Alabama, I didn't care about being the best. I didn't care about being part of a team. There was no commitment from me to be the best I could be for my teammates. And what Coach Bryant did in that meeting is went down 22. He went over, he went down the list of 22 players on what they had done to make themselves better from spring to fall. He knew every one of those guys had done. Bill Henderson had lost 40 pounds. This guy had done that. That guy had done that. And pretty much told me that I didn't deserve to be a starter. And by the end of that meeting, I begged for a chance to come back. And Coach Donahue, Coach Bryant said, Coach Donahue will probably kill you. But I'm going to give you a shot. Like uh, somebody else was saying, Coach Bryant would give you a second chance. He gave me a second chance. And, uh, you know, I went on to earn a starting position, went and played Miami. And, and uh, everything I do today, every, every success that I have, every win that I have, in my opinion, came from that meeting. And the fact that Coach Bryant cared enough about me, first of all, to talk to me. Secondly, to turn the light on for me so that I in that meeting start thinking like a man instead of a punk boy and there you have it bob baumhauer talking about coach bryant what a story folks and when we come back more on coach paul bear bryant born on this day in history in 1913 Every success that I have, every win that I have, in my opinion, came from that meeting and the fact that Coach Bryant cared enough about me, first of all, to talk to me, secondly, to turn the light on for me so that I, in that meeting, start thinking like a man instead of a punk boy. And again, that's Bob Baumauer. I could think like a man instead of a punk boy. What a gift to give a young man, the gift that Bear Bryant gave Bob. And by the way, Bryant was a tireless worker who led by example. He rose at 5 a.m. and didn't stop until late at night. Quote, It's not the will to win that matters, Bryant often said. Everybody has that. It's the will to prepare to win that matters. Here's Coach Bryant talking to his boys about the philosophy that he lived by, and it had to do with details and hard work and preparation. Now, here's why you can win on little things 
we'll be talking to you about little things as long as you're here. On little things and a little something extra. Now let's just suppose that we say that that uh, the maximum ability one can have is a hundred. That's the way we'll approach it. And let's say here I am, someone that that really only has, based on that hundred, a seventy-five percent or a seventy-five ability. And here over here is someone that has eighty-five that I'm going to play against. Now, it, it takes everyone, but this is just for you, you as an individual. Now, on Saturday, by virtue of the fact that you have paid the price, you've learned those lessons, you work on the little things, you are willing to give a little extra. Although you only have 75% ability, you play a little over your head, and we expect you to. Okay, you play, and you'll be an 85 player that day. Now, here's another man over here that's playing against you. Now, this could happen. It don't always happen. Then maybe he hasn't played the prize. Maybe he hasn't learned those lessons. Maybe he, he's not as dedicated as you are. And he doesn't play as well as he's supposed to play. And he falls off uh, 10%. Or he falls off 10 He only plays 75. And that's just to illustrate my point then you, because of your preparation and the things I'm trying to get across to you, you can beat him because you paid 85. And if we do that as a team, 11 at the time, well, four years from now, why, you'll be walking out of here as a national champion. And I'll tell you this, I expect nothing less. I expect nothing less. He's giving him a blueprint to success. No screaming, no yelling. Let's prepare. Let's do it right. And we can do this. No, Again, no screaming, no yelling. Very counterintuitive. All you coaches listening out there, all you parents listening out there, one of the great motivators in the history of sports, listen to the way he's talking to his athletes. By the way, if you're wondering what he sounded like, Bear Bryant, in a pregame speech, well, Jeff Rutledge... Well, he recalled a speech he remembered from decades ago. Rutledge was a quarterback in the 70s, won an NCAA championship in 78 at Alabama. And he recalled a talk Bear gave about, well, all kinds of things, but really self-respect. When the, uh, uh, Conrad Holloway was a senior, Steve Bechea was our fullback, and he made the last play right at the very end of the game. We came behind and won. But see, he's like we talked about Coach Brown started that game, he said, today we become one. If you don't feel that way, you don't belong here. When Steve runs, we run. When John blocks, we block. Now remember this. The game is over. You come back in the shower. You walk by the mirror. And only you and the man in that mirror knows if you did the best you could. You walk out of the dressing room. You see your girlfriend. You hug your mama. 
reach out. You touch your daddy's hand. And only you and the man knows if you did the best you could. And by the way, Rutledge recounted that as if it happened to him yesterday. What an impact this one man had on these thousands of young men. By the way, players also remember being afraid of Bear Bryant, too. Let's hear from John Croyle. You never respect something until you first fear it. And the respect he has is because we feared him. And I think great leadership has that characteristic. Not fear of physicalness, but the fear of you never want to disappoint that person you respect. And it's so true. And again, not physical fear, but disappointment. Not wanting to disappoint that someone you admire and respect. And again, it's all about the respect. Because the disappointment, who cares about disappointing someone you don't respect? So remember this, parents. You lead by example. And if your kids don't respect you, good luck. Good luck with everything. And as we come to the close of this celebration of the life of Bear Bryant, many books have been written about the man, but one of the best is Bear Bryant on Leadership by Pat Williams, co-founder of the Orlando Magic, friend of this show, and author of nearly 90 books on leadership. Here's Pat Williams. I'm going to close by the closing paragraphs of the book from uh, Grant Taft, the longtime football coach. Uh, in early January of 83, Coach Bryant attended our National Coaches Convention at the Biltmore Hotel in L.A. After the awards luncheon, I was sitting alone at a table going over my notes for an afternoon presentation. He came over and sat down next to me with an intense look on his face. He said, Grant, I want to tell you something. I want to tell you what I'd do differently if I could do it all over again. I thought, install the wish phone sooner, run another type defense, treat his coaches and players differently. Then he said to me, Grant, I would let everybody know that I'm a Christian. I am one and I didn't tell them. I am one and I didn't tell them. A regret of Bear's. A big one. And by the way, Bear Bryant was married to his college sweetheart, Mary. They had two children and they had four grandchildren. Bear Bryant died of a heart attack only 37 days after retiring. But his legacy, well, it lives on, and not just in the stadium that bears his name in Tuscaloosa, Alabama, or the statue that stands in front of that stadium. He lives on in the hearts of the young men he coached who were now grown men, so many of whom you heard from here today. He changed their lives because he challenged them to be the best players they could be, to be the best men they could be. And again, that Bob Baumauer story and that Joe Namath story, Kenny Stabler, a similar story about, well, challenging the coach and getting benched. A Hall of Famer benched and had to earn his way back onto the starting lineup. And again, you listen with the love and reverence of these grown men decades after having had full contact with this man, Bear Bryant, remembered here on our show, celebrated his birthday Born on this day in history in 1913, and as always, our This Day in History is brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College who teach all the things that matter in life, all the things that are beautiful in life, and by the way, they just happen to teach things like character and virtue, things that some believe are passe, but everybody knows really in their hearts aren't. And if you can't get to Hillsdale, Hillsdale will come to you with their free and terrific online courses. Go to Hillsdale. Edu. That's hillsdale.edu. And by the way, the president of the college, Larry Arn, 
He's an Arkansas boy, too. And you can't take the Arkansas out of the man. Bear Bryant's story, here on Our American Stories. Kenny Chesney singing There Goes My Life. It changed his life, for sure. Catapulted his career. This song raced to the top of the charts. And on this show, we love music. I think it was Aquinas who said, when we sing, we pray twice. And there's nothing like it. Shut up, just listen. We're going to do the story behind the story of this song, and we've done it for a few others. Gimme Shelter, what a story that is. Another Brick in the Wall, and we did it for Light My Fire. And this song, There Goes My Life, has quite a, a story behind it. Songwriter Neil Thrasher thought he knew everything about his best friend, fellow writer Wendell Mobley. And this is from Country Weekly. But as he pitched a song idea to Wendell, Neil would tap into a tender secret corner of his friend's life where an anguished memory had been bottled up for 19 years. We were writing together, Neil begins, and I came out on the front porch and said, why don't we write about a teenage boy who got his girlfriend pregnant, but they hung in there. I'd even had the words, there goes my life, in my notebook for over a year. At that point, Wendell softly spoke up. He tearfully told Neil about a daughter that he fathered while he was still in high school. My daughter's name was Lexi, Wendell explained to me. We lost her when she was a year old. Her birthday is March 17th. So these good friends didn't know this until this moment. Though he had been Neil's friends for years, Wendell had never shared this part of his life. Quote, I've been getting kind of funky around her birthday, wondering what she'd be like now. Wendell confesses with a crack in his voice. Neil brought this song idea up at the right time. The revelation rocked Neil to the core. I had no idea about Wendell's past when we started writing that first verse on the porch, says Neil, who's the father of two young daughters himself. I've got to tell you, being friends with Wendell as long as I had been and finding out something like that, man. Neil's voice trails off after that, overcome by the emotional impact. He pauses for a moment to collect his thoughts. That just got all over me. I broke down in front of my wife. As the two began to dive into the song, the emotions poured out like water. We cried and wrote and sang and ate and cried and wrote and sang and ate. 
says Neil with a tension-releasing laugh. There wasn't any stopping. It was almost like therapy, writing it with someone so close to me. Kenny Chesney recorded that powerful tune about an initially reluctant father watching his daughter grow up from infancy to adulthood with a decided change of emotions along the way. The single took off with rocket speed, hitting number one after just a few weeks. But beyond its chart success, There Goes My Life has wielded a far-reaching impact. Neil and Wendell have heard countless stories of estranged fathers and daughters actually reuniting, all because of their song. And of course, it changed for so many people. The whole idea of carrying a child to birth that otherwise they may not have wanted to. Right after we were done writing that song, Wendell remembers, Neil and I talked about how this was a perfect marriage between personal and universal storytelling. It's these kinds of stories when you know it's happening all over that is really so rewarding to hear. So I wanted to take you to an ASCAP songwriters conference in Boston. And I love these ASCAP songwriters conferences and you hear us play them. Wendell was there and so was Kenny Chesney. And here's Kenny giving props and respect to the writer and the man whose song, whose story turned into this song. Let's take a listen to Kenny Chesney. I will tell you that when I, I remember the first time I heard this song and my producer, Buddy Cannon, uh, we were uh, not in his Cadillac, Craig, but we were in his truck. And he goes, I got, you got to hear something. And he played me this song. And I, the first words out of my mouth were, are you sure that we can record this song? Because I knew it was one of those songs that, that you just don't come across every day. You know, and it was a... Um, As a songwriter, this is the best bridge to any song I've ever heard. This bridge kills <laughs> that me. That kills me. I, so, I, cry, I cry when he sings it. Freaks me out every time. So this, this song right here, I just want you guys to know... I think it might have was it might have been the first single off of the When the Sun Goes Down record. I it think. was, yeah. So, um, but I remember sitting in Buddy Cannon's truck, hearing this song, and it was just I, I couldn't believe that I was the guy that got to go out and sing this song every night for the rest of my life. And that's how much I love this. Song. Help me out, Kenny. And like Sinatra, who always thanked his writers. Uh, Kenny Chesney always, and all these country artists, always give props to the writers, because without the song, well, what do you have? And so at these great ASCAP conferences, the songwriter always gets to sing the first verse and chorus. And by the way, for my money, I like Wendell's version better. But you be the judge. Let's take a listen to Wendell Mobley. already a great song. Already. All he could see were his dreams going up in smoke. So much for ditch in this town hanging out on the coast. Oh, well. 
friends are long gone And he said And that spontaneous applause from the audience showing their appreciation to the writer and the writer, in the end, sharing his life with complete strangers. Let's take a listen to Kenny Chesney, who takes the second verse, hits that great bridge, and then takes it right out to the close. A couple of years I'm up on down and a few thousand diapers later That mistake you thought he made it Covers up the refrigerator, oh, yeah. And he loves that little girl. Mama waiting to tuck her in as she fumbled up the steps. She smiled back at him, dragging that teddy bear sleeve. Blue eyes and bounce and curls And he smiled There goes my life There goes my future My everything I love you, Daddy Good night There goes my Crown be closed, fifteen pairs of shoes, and his American Express. He checked the old slam the hood, said you're good to go. She hugged them both and headed off to the west coast. That first chorus, There Goes My Life, Resignation. Second chorus, There Goes My Life, Little Girl Running Up the Stairs. Third chorus, There Goes My Life, She's Out of Here. The house is empty. Absolutely beautiful. There goes my the story of the story behind the story of There Goes My Life. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. And great job to the whole crew here as always. 
Goes my.